Now, about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one, then, should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit and also yours. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, just uh, before I start the sermon, I just wanted to plug again growth groups. Cam mentioned uh, growth groups before, and uh, I just wanted to encourage you, if you're not part of a growth group, uh, to seriously give thought to that. Uh, growth groups uh, are one of the most important things we do alongside Sunday, and I've really valued uh, that time uh, that I've been part of a growth group here uh, in, in the church, and it's been one of the most important things for me. Uh, often people, when they begin to struggle, it's too late to connect with others around them. Uh, and so growth groups are a way that you can begin to connect with people over time uh, so that you can, when, when you really hit 
difficult times, uh, you can be well cared for. So let me encourage you to think uh, about joining a growth group if you're not part of one. Let me pray, and then we'll start. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for your grace to us in Jesus, that he died, that he rose again, uh, that he reigns as king. And Father, we ask that as we reflect now on living in the light of that news, that you would instruct us, that you would strengthen us and equip us to live for you. Uh, Lord, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. The uh, pastor and theologian John Dixon, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, he has a podcast, uh, his name escapes me, but he's written a number of books as well. And One book that he wrote is a book called, or it used to be called, Promoting the Gospel. And it's a really helpful book because what it does is it talks not only about how we need to communicate the gospel with our words, that's at the core of the, uh, the work of the gospel, but we also need to promote the gospel in lots of other ways. Around that, those central ideas, uh, we need to work in other ways to kind of promote that core work. Uh, and really, that's what's at the heart of this final chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. If you're here in the last couple of weeks, you would have seen how in chapter 15, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the core of the gospel. That is, that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures that, uh, for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to many witnesses. And now, having reminded them of that truth and the implications that it has for them and for the world in terms of the resurrection of those who trust in Christ, having reminded them of that, he now, in this last chapter, goes on to instruct them of how they can collaborate with him in making that gospel known, in supporting and promoting the work of that gospel ministry. This is the news that God has for the world, that Christ has died for sins and risen to life again. And then how can we as believers not only believe that, but make that known, support and promote that work as well? I don't want to suggest that everything in this chapter revolves around that, but really that's at the heart of many of the things that are mentioned here in this chapter. And uh, there's a number of themes that are repeated, a number of things that come up again and again. I want to focus on three of those as we work through that, this passage this morning. And that is, there's generosity, that's one of the ways that we promote and support the work of the gospel. There's submission, and then there's love. Generosity, submission, and then love. So Paul begins these final commands, these final instructions to the Corinthians and to us. He begins by giving them instructions about a collection for the fellow believers in Jerusalem. Now, we're not told exactly why a collection is being taken up, why they're collecting money for those uh, fellow Christians, but it seems kind of obviously, I suppose, that the reason was that the church in Jerusalem was experiencing some kind of financial hardship. So the early church often did that. We see that a number of times in the New Testament, that the early church collects money for other churches, other Christians, in far-off places who are in need. So in Acts chapter 11, for example, they, the churches take up a collection for the Christians who are in Judea. 
they were experiencing a famine at that time. So the other churches in different places collect money and then send it to them. So too, in Paul's other letter that we have in the Bible to the Corinthians, in chapter 8 and 9 of that letter, Paul again mentions this collection and encourages the Corinthians to give. It's interesting, actually, that in the New Testament, all the examples of organised collections, uh, gathering together of money, all those organised collections are actually for the financial relief of other churches and other Christians, which is not to suggest that we ought not to be generous to others as well, but it is to suggest that at the heart of the Christian community is this idea that we are to be particularly generous and to have a particular love and concern for our brothers and sisters, and often brothers and sisters whom we've never met. These New Testament churches were not sending money to churches down the road, but often to far-off places that they may have only ever heard the name of. They probably would never have visited them, uh, but they are encouraged to send money. And in the same way, many of our brothers and sisters in far-off places around the world are struggling living in poverty, and many of us, all of us in some way, have the power to help them. We can't, of course, fix the whole world's poverty, just like the early Christian church could not fix the rampant poverty in the Roman Empire, for example. And in fact, one of the reasons why it's so hard to fix systemic poverty in the world is often because of corruption. So you can give as much money as you want to... uh, to particular other countries, but if the governments that are running those countries are corrupt, it's often very difficult uh, for that money to be distributed and used wisely. But we can, as believers, give to our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we've never met, and as we do that, we can often have greater confidence that that money will be used wisely, not only actually for their own good, but actually also often for the good the the non-believers who are living around those Christians as well in those places. It's kind of an organic way of making sure that the money is used wisely. And that's one of the most important things, Paul says, for us in promoting the work of the gospel. That is, to support our brothers and sisters around the world who are in need. And so if if that's not something that is on your agenda, if that's not something that is part of your Christian life, then let me encourage you to think about that, to pray about that, and to take that up. Uh, We have in this church uh, Jeff Powell, who is a representative for Barnabas Fund. They do work supporting our fellow believers around the world who are in need. Chris showed before a slide from Open Doors. They too do that work. We saw how difficult it is for our fellow believers in Afghanistan, uh, and we can support them financially. We ought to do that to promote the work of the gospel, and not just sporadically, but we ought to also think about how we might be able to regularly support and and, uh, give to them as well. So God encourages us to be generous to our fellow Christians who are in need, But Paul also speaks a little bit later, not just about poverty, but also about gospel mission and supporting that work. So he encourages the Corinthians, or he wants the Corinthians, to contribute to his ministry. He says in verses 5 and 6, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. 
Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. So Paul wanted to visit the Corinthians and obviously he wanted to visit them for their encouragement in the gospel and so on. But he says one of the other reasons he wants to stay there with them is so that they can help him in his further missionary journeys. Now the kind of help that he has in mind is financial. Uh, it's, it's money, it's food, it's perhaps companions who would accompany him on his missionary journey. He wants to go there so that they can contribute to his mission work by supporting him. And so in the same way, alongside our generosity to our brothers and sisters around the world who are in need, we also should be actively supporting missionaries who are taking the gospel to places that we are not able to go. Paul had been set apart for the work of the gospel and he encourages the Corinthians to be involved in that gospel work in their support for him, in their financial support for him. Now, as a church, we are fortunate, we're blessed to be able to do that with a number of missionaries around the world. Uh, it's a great privilege that we have. And if you're not aware of that work that we're doing, then I encourage you to, to become aware. Come to the missions prayer meeting uh, on Saturday and, to hear, and hear more about that work and pray for it. But alongside that work that we do together, we've always had a vision as well of every individual in the church, not just supporting what we do together, but every individual in the church being connected with mission work individually as well. So there's stuff that we do together, but we also want to have a heart ourselves. We want to encourage people to look for the mission work that they can individually support as well, whether that's a particular missionary. So we give to the work of particular missionaries in our church. I'm not mentioning their names because this is being recorded, but uh, we might su support their work as a church. Some of us also support their work individually. In fact, by God's grace... Often our missionaries are so well supported by the members of the church that we are not left with much, there's not much left over at the end for the church actually to contribute as a whole, which is a great blessing. But we want people to be individually engaged in supporting missionaries. It might be one of our missionaries, it might be a friend that you have doing mission in another part of the world that you're individually connected to, that you're praying for as well and supporting financially. It might be, perhaps you don't know any individual missionaries, but there's a mission agency that you can connect with. Maybe that's CMS or Pioneers or SIM uh, or whatever it is. You can connect with the work that they're doing and support that work financially. God wants us to be generous with the gifts that he's entrusted to us in providing for the needs of our brothers and sisters around the world who are in poverty and providing for the work of mission, providing for those who are going to the places that maybe we ourselves are not able to go. But Paul doesn't stop just with that. He also gives some really practical financial advice on how to go about making sure they give to the work of mission. He says there in verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. 
The issue that Paul is addressing there is that in a few months he's going to come and visit and the idea is that they'll collect the money uh, and take it with them. The problem is, is that if they wait until Paul arrives before they start setting aside money, there won't be much to collect. That's because they, like all of us, will probably have spent the money by the time Paul arrives and what they will be gathering together is the money that they have left over when he gets there. They'll only have what's left on hand. But if, a few months before Paul comes, they start setting aside a bit of money every week, as much as they're able, according to the provision that God has given them, if they start setting that aside every week until the time that Paul arrives, they'll save up more over that period of time to be able to give than if they, they wait until the last minute. A few years ago, I read the book The Barefoot Investor. I'm kind of embarrassed uh, to admit that, but so many other people were reading, I thought, well, you know, I'll give it a, to see what everyone's doing. And the basic point of that book is that if you don't set aside money, for example, for things like saving for a house, or saving for retirement, or saving for emergencies, if you don't set aside money and plan to set aside money for those things, you won't have it when you need it. That is, you don't just decide one day that you're going to buy a house and then suddenly find tens of thousands of dollars lying around for a house deposit that you can use. You have to plan to save. You have to set aside little by little. And Paul is really suggesting the same thing here in 1 Corinthians 16. He's suggesting that we and the Corinthians go barefoot for missions and generosity to our fellow believers. If we don't plan to set aside money, then we won't have that money to give, or what we do have to give will just be the leftovers, the, the scraps after we've spent everything else. I remember uh, the story of one pastor uh, who told a story a number of years ago about how his church was always falling behind budget. And the elders of the church thought, okay, how are we going to address this fact that we're falling behind budget? There should have been enough financial resources within the church to meet the, the budget that they had. And so they sat down and I thought, okay, the way that we need to deal with this problem is by preaching more about generosity. We have to tell people to be generous. And not only do we have to teach people about generosity, we have to teach people about costly generosity. That is, sometimes... It will cost us to give, and sometimes we have to give more than we even have to give. There will be times when that's, that's necessary. And so they did sermons on those things. They did sermons on money, and yet nothing seemed to change. They didn't seem to get anywhere. And so after sort of doing that for a while and trying to work out what to do, at the end of the day, they thought, okay, we're gonna, let's do a survey of the church. Let's see what people are thinking about money. They did a survey of the church. They discovered that people were absolutely committed to generosity for the sake of the gospel. They were absolutely, most people were absolutely committed to costly generosity. They, they recognized that it would cost them to give. The problem was, they discovered, that nobody was actually thinking about the practical steps that they needed to take in order to be generous. 
No one was sitting down and thinking, oh, I'm going to have to put some money aside in order to do this. They just thought, yep, totally with that, totally with generosity, totally with costly generosity. But when the time came to give, they'd spent all the money on other things. And so what they did was they helped people to make plans to be generous. If we don't plan to give, if we don't set aside that money at the start, it won't be there for our generosity. It won't be there for us to use. So let me give some practical advice on how, one way that you might think about doing that, how you might leverage the Barefoot Investor's advice. This is straight from the Barefoot Investor, but it's for gospel mission. Uh, that is, uh, go home and set up another online bank account. Okay, so it doesn't cost much to set up another bank account. In fact, it doesn't cost anything mostly. It's usually free. Go home, set up another bank account online with your existing bank and give it the name Gospel. And then sit down and, and look at your finances, pray, ask the Lord to give you wisdom and guidance and generosity as you think about how much every pay you can contribute to the work of the gospel. And then set up an automatic transfer every month from your, after your pay comes in or every fortnight after your pay comes in to transfer that money into your gospel account. And from that gospel account, you then have money which you've set aside for the purpose of giving to the work of the gospel. You can give that money to church, you can give it to, the, to Barnabas Fund, to Open Doors, you can give it to missionaries. Uh, you might like to set up regular payments to some of those different kinds of things. You also might like to keep a little bit left over in reserve that grows over time so that when particular needs arise, you have money there uh, to give. But the point is that we need to plan, we need to save that money up, otherwise it won't be there to give. Paul encourages the Corinthians, he's encouraging us, God is encouraging us to be generous and to plan to be generous, to promote the work of the gospel. So that's the first thing, generosity. The second thing is submission. So Paul says in verse 10, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt, send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. Now, I just want you to stop and think for a moment about what Paul has said. See to it that he has nothing to fear from you while he is with you. It's a remarkable statement, isn't it? What on earth would, would Timothy have to be afraid of from the Corinthians? Why does Paul have to say that? Well, the answer is that the danger is that the people will treat him with contempt. Uh, they are then to send him on his way in peace. There's a danger that when, that when Timothy comes to the church, they will make his life so difficult that it will be unbearable. That he'll be afraid of the work that he's being commissioned by God and by Paul to do there. Later in verse 15, Paul talks about a similar kind of thing. He says something about local leaders in the church. He says in verse 15, You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people 
and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. It seems that in the Corinthian church at the time, the elders had probably not been appointed. That's suggested by the fact that the letter is not addressed to the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, and they're never mentioned at any point in dealing with the false teaching and so on. But there are these people, it seems like, Stephanus and his household, who were kind of natural leaders, who stood out as natural leaders because of their godliness and their devotion to the service of the Lord's people. And Paul says to the Corinthians that they ought to submit to those people, these people who've given their lives, who are examples of godliness, they ought to obey them. And in many ways, those two issues of contempt uh, for Timothy, if you like, and submission, contempt and submission, are really two sides of the same coin. That is, if you hold someone in contempt, you're not going to submit to them. And if you're not submitting to them, really you're holding, and, and they're in a position of authority, then you're holding them in contempt. Submitting to leaders, gospel leaders, might not seem like a way of supporting the gospel, but it's actually very difficult for the church to take positive steps to advance the gospel if, there's, if there is contempt and if there isn't submission to the, the, the leadership of the, of the gospel leaders. Now, I find this difficult to speak about for obvious reasons. That is because I, it, you know, I guess in some sense I have an axe to grind. <laughs> that, um, but there is in the Bible an idea of submission and obedience to church leaders. As I said, I'm not, not saying that to appear self-serving or to be self-serving. Uh, and I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that that, that leadership and call to submission can and has, in many churches, been abused. And that's not right. And we also need to recognise that it's a very controversial idea. But I, but I want to be clear, although there is an unloving, unkind, abusive style of church leadership which is thoroughly and completely evil, which undermines the work of the gospel... And, and I'm not suggesting that we should turn a blind eye to that or, ex, or accept that style of leadership in the church, not at all. Uh, but there is also, or there ought to be, a loving and godly leadership in the church, an imperfect leadership, but with a, with a godly and zealous heart, the kind of heart that Stephanus and his household had. There is a kind of leadership that is like that, that in some sense we need to submit to. Uh, in order to promote the work of the gospel. The problem is, I think, for us, is that our culture drums into us very much that, not that, we, that we don't submit, that really we can do whatever we want to do and that we have the opportunity and the privilege and the right to make up our minds on everything. And that means that in that culture, it means that submission goes out the window. Uh, and, in, and indeed, it's, it's the breeding ground for contempt as well. We see that in the way that people respond to the government and to authorities. I think we've seen that particularly in the last few years. 
Uh, but we also see it increasingly in the church too. I'm not, I'm not targeting anyone here or I'm not saying it's a particular problem in this church, but I, it is a, an issue that arises because of the culture that we live in. And that resistance and contempt and lack of submission manifests itself, I think, in two particular ways. So the first way, and probably the most obvious way, is grumbling and complaining. So it's very easy for us, and maybe this is the way that you respond to things, maybe you deal with things that you don't like by complaining about it. You might go to the person who's responsible for it, whose job it is, and complain and grumble to them. So maybe, to pick an obvious example, maybe you don't like a song, you don't like what happened in the music or something like that, or you don't like the way that someone led the service, or you didn't like something about the preaching, it's very easy then to go to that person and to grumble and complain about that. Now, I want to distinguish between grumbling and giving helpful feedback. There is obviously a place, an important place, for giving helpful feedback. And the difference often is one of tone. That is, you can often tell whether you're giving helpful feedback or whether you're grumbling and complaining based on how agitated you feel about the issue, right? Or maybe, so maybe you might grumble to the person, maybe you don't grumble and complain to that person and so think, well, I'm doing pretty well in that area, but you grumble and complain to other people about it. Say, so what, what was with that song? That was hopeless, I hate that song. It's the worst song we've ever sung. And maybe, maybe, you know what, maybe you don't like the song. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't owe on a service to, to complain about it like that and to grumble about it, to grumble about the work that people are doing in love using their time to find music, to learn the music, whatever the work is that they're doing. It does no good to grumble and complain about that. It's an obvious form of contempt and in some way a lack of submission as well to people who've been appointed to take responsibility for those tasks. But here's the thing, I don't actually think that grumbling and complaining is the most prevalent or even the most damaging form of contempt and lack of submission in our world today. A more subtle and I think much more common form of contempt and lack of submission comes through simply not participating in the things that we don't agree with. So if we don't like something, if we don't like the way that someone is doing something, we don't grumble and complain about it, we keep silent, but then we just avoid it. We don't take part in it. So Maybe you're helping out in an area and then a decision is made that you don't agree with and so you just stop helping out. Think, well, I'm not going to be part of that. I'm not going to be involved. I think most people's model of the church and indeed I think of the world in general functions something like this. That is, I'll do what I agree with and I won't do what I don't agree with and what I don't like. So people are free to make their own decisions and to lead, but I get to choose what it is that I'm going to do or not do based on my, my own autonomy. That's true of activities in the church and in the world. It's also true even, I think, of things like truth, the truth of the Bible. So there's an undeniable sense in the New Testament that the elders and the leaders of the church are entrusted, in some sense, 
with teaching and correcting and forming people in sound doctrine. So Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That idea implies some kind of authority. There is, the, there is implicit in that a kind of authority to say that is wrong and this is right. Okay, If Timothy is to correct, rebuke and encourage, then there must be some kind of authority to say that is wrong and this is right. But I suspect that for many people, the way we engage with theological truth in the setting of a church is that we can sometimes see what is presented as just one person's opinion that we each get to decide whether we'll take or leave. So here it is, it's put out, and then it's my job to decide whether or not I'm going to run with that or not. Now please don't misunderstand what I'm saying, I'm not suggesting that everything that is ever said by a church leader is to be followed without question or is absolutely true or anything like that. Still less am I suggesting that I always get everything right or, something, or anything like that. But there is a sense that we need to maintain hold on. There is a sense in which the elders together as a group are entrusted with stewarding the truth and the right understanding of the scriptures. There's a sense in which the elders together are entrusted with stewarding the truth of God and the right understanding of the scriptures. There's a responsibility entrusted to them to say, that is wrong and this is right. Now, to be sure, again, the idea that they will always get it right is dangerous and no one is claiming that. But it is just as dangerous, if not more dangerous, to subscribe to the notion that every person is their own pope. Very difficult for us to work together as a church if every person is their own pope. I was speaking with a uh, former pastor recently and he, it was interesting because he had identified exactly the same issue that had been on my mind as well. And he said, Carl, do you know what the biggest problem in our society is? It's autonomy. And it's infecting the church too. That is, everyone decides for themselves what is right and what is wrong. But society can't function like that. It won't work. We need leaders who tell us the way to go. And that's true of the church as well. And so Paul says, submit to those in the church who are over you. So we need to be generous to promote the work of the gospel. We also need to submit wisely under God to promote the work of the gospel. Finally, and very briefly, we also support the work of the gospel through love. So one of the great themes in this last chapter is love and affection. Paul says in verse 13, do everything in love. Uh, the other churches send their greetings to the Corinthian church. They love them, they care about them, they send their warm greetings. Aquila and Priscilla do the same. Paul urges the church themselves, the members, to greet one another in love, to greet one another with a holy kiss. And he finishes his letter, verse 24, my love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. 
Of course, Paul has emphasized back in chapter 13 the importance of love. He says there, you can give all that you have to the poor, but if you don't have love, you gain nothing. It's, it's, it's worse, it's useless. And in the same way, you can give all you have to gospel ministry, to our brothers and sisters who are in need throughout the world, but if it's not out of love, what's the point? It's love that ought to drive our generosity. It's love as well that ought to drive our submission. And it's love that ought to be the hallmark of our life together and the hallmark of our esteem for our brothers and sisters in other churches and in other places. And so it's helpful as we finish this letter of Corinthians to go back to those words in chapter 13 where Paul spells out the meaning of love. He says this, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonour others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If we want to promote the work of the gospel, if we want to strengthen the church, then that's how we need to, be, that's how we need to live. Yes, we need to be generous. Yes, we need to wisely and rightly submit to those in authority. But we need to do that out of love. We need to be patient, kind, not proud, not dishonouring, not seeking our own good, not easily angered, not keeping a record of wrongs, not delighting in evil, but rejoicing with the truth. That is how we will promote the work of the gospel and so glorify God. Let's pray.